right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Again, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are watching us on social media, especially, though, to you guys in-house. Love seeing your faces. Some of you I haven't seen in a little while. Others I see every week, and I'm grateful for all of you, so I'm so glad that you're here. And I am excited to share this message today about pain and suffering and grief and agony. I know you are, right? Do you know why I'm excited about it? I'm excited because pain and grief and suffering and agony are all part of life. As a human being on this earth, they're a part of life. But it's how we look at what comes our way that changes our experience, changes our relationship with God. And through the message today, through seeing these things that happen to Job, an Old Testament hero of the Bible, by seeing his response, it can help us to understand how God uses these things. No matter how bad or or ugly they seem on the surface, God's got a plan, and he's going to use all those things to draw us closer to him. And that's why I'm excited about this. Nobody's excited about going through pain and suffering. Let me just say that. But our response, the way that our mind is geared, and that's what I hope this message today helps you with, helps all of us with, is to have our mind geared in the right direction so that we can just see the sovereign purposes and more than that, just the love of God in every experience we have. That's, you could skip right to the end of the message. That's the point of this whole message. That's why I'm excited. So go back and listen if you've missed any of them in our series called Blameless, A Study in the Life of Job. We're on, this is week five right now. Go back, wherever you are, you can catch them on Facebook, YouTube. Go back and check out the previous messages because I think they all kind of build on one another. We are, we're in a very meaty message here today. Chapter two is what I was going to cover today. And it's only 13 verses. Chapter 2 is only 13 verses. And I thought, oh, we can get through 13 verses. But then as I studied, and this, the layers of this onion just began to unfold and unfold and go deeper and deeper and deeper, I said, there is no way that I'm getting through all of that. So we're going to split chapter 2 into a couple sections. This is the first section that we're going to talk about. And I'll, I'll just let you know right now, this doesn't answer a lot of questions. It raises a lot of questions. But those questions that we can chew on and we can, we can pray about and let the Holy Spirit kind of guide us through, that's what's exciting to me, is being in those places, being put in those positions where you absolutely have to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide you through it. Those things that are obvious, those things that we look at and just go, oh, I see a way out of this. I see a way through this. I've done this before. I know how this works. I know what I can do. Those are okay, But those don't help you grow closer to God. Those don't help you to to understand that you have to rely on him. And it's those times when it's above and beyond anything that you've got any idea on how to handle. Those are the times that excite me. So last week, last week we saw this this horrendous um, trial that Job started to go through. His family taken away, his children, his, his servants, his livelihood in terms of all of his livestock and all the things that he had, all just taken away in just one rapid fire hit after another before he even had a chance to take a breath. 
the next punch was coming his way, and he was just getting drilled and drilled and drilled, and one after the other, one after the other. And what's his response? He falls to his knees and worships God. That's his response to all these punches coming his way. And at that point, he had two choices. When everything is taken away, again, not when, not when you can see a path and, you, and you've, well, I've ex- by experience, I know what to do and I know how this works. I just got to do it. When you come to the end of like, I've never seen this before. I've never experienced pain or a situation like this before. I've got nothing. Then you have two choices. You have two choices. You can increase your faith. Increase your faith. And it's easier said than done. But this is the choice that Job has. Increase your faith. Or the easier way is to lower your expectations of God. Lower your expectations of God to the point where you say, well, maybe he's somewhere else and he's not really concerned. I just need to figure out a way through this rather than to press into him. And I'll tell you, that's where the enemy wants us to go. Lower our expectations of what, can, of what God can do and what he wants to do. So let's get into this message right now. Again, I, I hope you can tell I'm just excited about being able to share this one with you. So as we go into chapter 2, so we finished up chapter 1 last week. We're going into chapter 2 this week. Chapter 2, we don't know really the time frame. So we left chapter 1 with all these things being taken away from Job. Job falls to his knees And worships God. And now we open up chapter 2 with another blow that's about to come Job's way. And we don't really know the time frame between the last set of tragedies and this new set of tragedies. We can infer some things. Here's my feeling. My feeling is it was probably pretty much right away for maximum effect devil doesn't want to give you a time to relax and regroup and recharge and maybe think about it and maybe pray about it. He wants to hit you one after another after another with the hopes that you're just going to erupt and act in the flesh. This is where we are. Now, some of the information, I'll, I'll just give you a little uh, uh, a hint on kind of where we get some of this information. Most of it and our primary source for things like this needs to be the Word of God. The Word of God is very complete and everything that we need to know. But we also like to put together some fill-in-the-blanks, right, of some facts and different things like, well, how long before this and this? And, and, and who, who was Job's wife? And did he, was it the same wife at the end? Some of these things we get from different sources that are outside of Scripture. And I'll do my best to tell you when those, those ideas and those things I tell you come from outside of Scripture. There's a couple of them. There's one called the Talmud. The Talmud is a companion, if you will. A better, it's much deeper than that, but it's essentially a companion to the Hebrew Bible. It expands on some of the ideas, and most of it comes through Jewish folklore. Okay, Some of it is is backed up in other parts of history. It just didn't quite make scripture. Some of it is apocryphal. Apocryphal is just a word that means of dubious authenticity. May or may not be true, but it's accepted as true, whether by tradition or just things that we believe as true. Another one, though, and kind of more applicable for what we're talking about, remember, Job happened 4,000 years ago. 
And so our earliest source of kind of filling in some of these blanks is a document or a series of documents called the Targum. Targum, and you don't need to necessarily remember that, but way back when Scripture was translated into Greek, it was called the Septuagint, way, way back. And when that happened, there was another companion to that series of companion writings called the Targum. The Targum, again, a lot of it is just based on folklore, assumption, kind of making sort of an epic uh, story out of this. And it fills in some blanks. Some of them are accurate. Some of them are not. Some of them have been accepted for centuries. Some of them have easily been discarded as just something that was kind of a story. So some of these information, this information comes from those sources. I'll tell you when we get to those places. But let's get right into the scripture here. Job chapter 2, verse 1. Obviously, very first scripture of this chapter. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. You contrast this, if you remember the way that chapter 1 opened up, it was the very same scene, very same scene where the sons of God are presenting themselves before the Lord. Here's one key difference where it says, And Satan also came among them to present himself. Chapter 1, it just says Satan came among them. Satan was kind of an uninvited guest. He had authority and permission to be there in the throne room of God, but he wasn't really invited for this meeting, if you will. This time, Satan came among them to present himself. It's a different word translated intentionally to mean he's got a reason to be there. He has a reason. He's got a bullet point on the agenda that they're going to talk about in this meeting with God, and it's what's been going on with Job. So he's got a reason to be there. It wasn't used in 1.6 because he just had no, Satan had no report. He was just there to observe. Job chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Again, exactly mirroring chapter 1. There's a reason for that. This is a form of ancient poetry, ancient writing that uses certain forms where it reiterates, takes the same sentence and repeats it again and again, maybe with minor changes, but it's a, it's a form of writing that was going on there. There are a couple different forms of writing that are used here, and I want to take just a second and explain this. They repeat these statements like in this for effect. Now, there's different genres of writing. I want to take just a brief moment and explain genres. A genre, you have to look at the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, as literature. As literature. And as such, it follows rules that literature follows. And if you're going to understand what it's talking about or understand why it does things the way that it does, you need to at least have a basic understanding that genres exist. Okay, You don't have to know what they all are and be able to name them all, but they exist. And there's several ones. Now, what they are is different styles of writing all throughout the Bible that are done in a certain way for a certain reason. Sometimes things are put in the form of poetry because it's easier to remember and to recite in a group setting. Sometimes it's just, it's just facts, like you'd find in an encyclopedia, just a document of facts. And you need to look at it through that lens. In other words, you wouldn't read, uh, you wouldn't read the phone book and a fictional novel in the same way. You would know that uh, if in the phone book, 
if it says this name, who has phone books anymore, right? That's an old reference. I need to get rid of that. <laughs> but you look at that. Yeah, they throw it on your porch, and then you throw it right in the trash, right? That's how that works at my house. Um, but you wouldn't read the phone book, and you would go, okay, this person, this address, this name. That's a total fact. There's no story flow. It's just a fact. Then you read a fictional novel, and you know going in that a lot of this has been either embellished or completely made up. Then there's all the in-betweens, different ways that you do different things. So here are some of the genres that the Bible is written in, in various books. There's narrative. Okay, narrative just means here's what happened, here's when it happened, here's how it happened. Lots of them, Genesis, um, Exodus, Numbers, Samuel, Kings, those are all basically narratives. Then there's the law, law books. So um, Genesis, part of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's all just written as law. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, essentially. Then epistles. An epistle is a letter written by someone to someone or some body of people. That's what an epistle is. And it's strictly, here's what's going on with you. Here's my advice about what to do. That's essentially what an epistle is. Then there's wisdom literature. So you've got Proverbs. Um, Job falls into that category. Ecclesiastes is. Uh, some of the parables of Jesus fall into this wisdom literature. Poetry then. Poetry, Psalms, uh, Song, of Sol- Song of Solomon, Lamentations are all written in poetry. And some pretty big chunks of Job are that way. Then there's prophetic we know all the prophets, the, the minor and major prophets, prophetic writing. And then apocalyptic is the final one. You see Daniel, most of Daniel, and then Revelation are apocalyptic writings. You read each one of those through a different lens and with a different expectation of what it's talking about. Again, um, I just tell you that so that you understand if you're reading something and it doesn't make sense, look at it more closely. What genre is this? Am I to take this literally? Or am I supposed to look at this as, a, as some sort of a parable or an illustration of a, of a larger picture? The book of Job, you can actually divide it into a couple sections. The first section, for, actually first and last, are narrative. The prologue, which is chapters 1 and 2, and the epilogue, which is the last half of the last chapter, are, are narrative. This happened, here's what was happening. And in between, it switches into poetry. Many, many chapters of poetry. Now, it's narrative poetry, as in like an epic poem that you would see if you studied uh, Greek literature in high school or, or in college. Here's the reason that's important. Many people say, and I agree, that Job himself is the author of most of this book. I do believe that chapters 1 and 2, the prologue and the epilogue, and then the end in 42, are a different style which may have been written by Job later in his life or maybe by Moses or someone else kind of adding those caps on, on either end of the story. So it's important to know that we switch from one to the other. After chapter 2, we'll switch into poetry writing, which is mostly, I believe, mostly Job himself writing this. So just a sidebar, just so that you kind of understand those sorts of things. Let's get back into the scripture. Job chapter 2, verse 3. Have you, uh, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him 
without cause. Again, there's kind of that repeat of what happened the first time with this little addition on the end. And still he holds fast his integrity, even though you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. That makes it sound like Satan has somehow tricked God into doing something. Somehow tricked or, or, or manipulated God into doing something that he didn't want to do. Here's what we need to do. When we see things like that that kind of don't look like it makes sense, we need to look at that term. Let's look at the term without cause. Just the last two words, without cause. That is actually a Hebrew word. It's called kinnom, or it's pronounced kinnom. The definition of that is for no reason or to no effect. So what that means is you've incited me against him even though it didn't accomplish anything is a better way to kind of understand what's going on here. It doesn't mean you tricked me into, into going against Job for no reason. It means you, you incited me, which means you, you talked me into it in essence, right? But it was God's idea. And he went after Job and allowed Satan to punish Job, but it had no effect. That's what he's talking about right here, okay? So that's where we are. Now, in a court of law, a baseless accusation like this would just be thrown out of court. If it had no basis, it would just be thrown out of court. But Satan believes that he has legal ground here. Satan believes that he's got legal ground and legal right to go after Job. Now, I want to take another moment and talk about spiritual warfare and how legal right and legal authority work. Okay? The kingdom of heaven, the way that we as human beings can wrap our mind around the way a lot of things work in heaven is by looking at the earthly analogy of a courtroom and a prosecutor and, and a plaintiff and the way that those things work and then, of course, a judge. In spiritual warfare, it works a little bit differently, but there are still very finite rules. As we've seen, God allows Satan to do certain things. Other things he restricts him from and says, you cannot cross that line, and he won't let him. Satan and his demons can only torment those who call on the name of the Lord. In other words, you, you as, as us, we're Christians, we confess the name of Christ. Back then, it said they called on the name of the Lord, which means they knew the Lord God. They had a relationship with the God of Israel. And Satan and his demons can only torment them within certain boundaries. Now, if you're outside of that, you are on your own. But a believer in Christ, or one back then who called on the name of the Lord, cannot be possessed. This is important. A lot of people say that you cannot be possessed. Scripture tells us if you belong to the Lord, you belong to him. You can't belong to two different masters at the same time. So if you call in the name of the Lord, you belong to him. You cannot be possessed. You can, however, and are, however, going to be tormented. This happens all the time. But specific permission has to be given by God for his purposes, okay? Or we can give permission. We, intentionally or unintentionally, can give permission, in other words, authority, legal right, for Satan to torment us. We don't do it knowingly most of the time, but we can. Sometimes people just outright, they worship Satan, or they'll have a fascination with things of the occult, say, 
uh, tarot cards and horoscopes and unforgiveness, anger, unrepentant sin gives the enemy legal right to torment you. Now let's talk about this. Satan thought he had that opening right there, but God knew that Satan had no. Remember, Satan is not omniscient. Satan does not know everything. Only God knows everything. And he knew that Job was on solid ground here. Job had made regular sacrifices. Remember, Job wasn't perfect. Job did sin in his life. There's only one person that walked on this planet that never did sin. So Job did sin. But Scripture still says that he's blameless. He's blameless because he recognized it and he repented. And he did what was necessary. In that time, what was necessary was sacrifice. You had to actually offer sacrifice. And Job did this regularly. Now we have Jesus. And we don't have to offer animal sacrifice because Jesus has done that for us. Job 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice that was given for us. So we don't have to do this anymore and stand in front of the enemy, stand in front of the accuser, Satan, without an intercessor, without any, any one to speak for us. But to continue on that idea of hidden or unrepentant sin, this is where it gets us on a day-to-day basis. Hidden sin in our lives, things that we have not repented of, things that we have not recognized and called out, things that we sometimes refuse to repent of. Now, you may have a sin in your life that you're like, I I know that's not right, and I know I shouldn't do that. But have you repented of it? Repent, remember, means to turn away from. It does not mean you're not going to have a bad day and turn back to it. But then our response is immediately to turn away again. Repent as often as necessary. Repeat as necessary, the label would say. When we do that, it does not give the enemy legal ground. Let me read this to you. This is 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. It's a little bit longer, but let me read you how this works. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It sounds very harsh, but what it's telling you is get that out. Get that sin out. Repent of it. Confess it. Get it out in the open And you do not leave Satan then legal authority, a foothold to come in and torment you over that thing. Confession and repentance brings them into the light where they are forgiven and we are reconciled. Hear that. Getting our sin into the light allows us to be forgiven and reconciled. Job didn't have that. Job did not have that option that we have and so he had to face the accusations. And this is, this is what we're looking at right here. You can offer sacrifice, but that does not cover our sins like the blood of Jesus does. 
So again, back to scripture here. Job chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes. All that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. Losing all your stuff is bad. Even losing your loved ones is horrible. But what Satan is saying here, the accusation here, is if you touch his body, if you make him sick, if you put him in physical pain, he's going to fail without a doubt. So there's lots of theories about that idea of skin for skin. It, in, the, in its day, skins were often traded for as money. Okay? They were used monetarily um, in trade. And so that idea of giving one skin for something else, uh, I believe, is what essentially they were talking about here in time and space. But it also gives back to this idea of saving your skin. Save your skin, right? He's, he's saying... Job will do anything. He'll give anything to save his own skin. We see that in in Adam and Eve all the way back in the Garden of Eden where Adam essentially tried to kind of give up Eve to save himself. We see that happening. We see at the same time God providing a skin to cover them and to cover their skin. Another translation, separate translation, translates that instead of skin for skin as member for member, meaning one person or member of the body on behalf of another. And if we look at it that way, that could be a shadow of Jesus giving himself or giving his skin, his flesh for us. But in context, if we just look at the context of this, it means that Job would give every skin he had, everything he had, he would give to save his life. That's the accusation right here. Chapter 2, verse 6. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. Now the reason that he did this, he's in your power, only spare his life. Job is going to undergo more than just a momentary trial. He's going to suffer and be in pain for a long time. And death would be merciful. Death would put an end to it. So in fact, I'm sure there's many points, as we'll see, that Job himself says, I would rather just die. Or better yet, I'd rather I wasn't even born to begin with than go through this. And God, is, God himself is saying, let's prolong this. You can have him, but you can't kill him. Because that would put an end to it, and it wouldn't prove any point. It would be senseless at that point. So, Job, so move to chapter 2, verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Again, he wastes no time. And smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, I was going to put up a picture up there of what this looked like. Uh, No. Some of us have recently had breakfast. I did not want to do that. But what I did do, though, is I went through the rest of the book. And all throughout the book, it will allude back to the things that are going on, the things that kind of accompany this affliction. Let me give you a list. This is a comprehensive list of the different afflictions that came Job's way as a result of this. And again, they're scattered throughout the book, so we'll talk to them about them when we get there. Intense pain, peeling and darkened skin, pus-filled erupting sores, sorry, anorexia, emaciation, fever, depression, 
weeping, sleeplessness, nightmares, putrid breath, difficulty breathing, failing vision, rotting teeth, haggard looks, painful swollen sores, sores all over his body, and intense, intense itching. How many of us could stand and be blameless and remain righteous before God under that kind of suffering? But this does bring up an often asked question about the power of Satan. Does Satan have the power to make us sick? What can Satan do and what can't he do? Short version, I might do this on a separate video later. Satan does have the power to cause physical afflictions. Yes, he can. Okay. Acts 10.38 says, You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, that was spiritual and physical healing. We saw that in both ways. The important thing to know, though, not all sickness, not all of it is caused directly by a satanic attack. Not all of it. It is all called, all caused by a fallen world. Fallen world allowed sickness to come into this world. And so it is, yes, a result of that. But not every momentary affliction that we have is an attack by Satan. The most radical, complete, and final healing that we will see of our physical bodies is not going to happen until the second coming of Christ. Until then, we have afflictions that we're going to have to deal with. And until then, here's Job's response. Job's response to being smitten or smote with all these things. Here's Job's response. Chapter 2, verse 8. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Okay, it's not, it's a very short little sentence right there, but it paints a big picture. Job no longer considered himself worthy of being within his home or even within the walls of the city that he lived in. So he left the city, went out the gates by himself to a place farther away from the gates, a trash heap. This is a trash heap. There's plenty of broken pottery. This is, was also called a dung heap. It's where they brought all the human waste out of the town. And they piled it in this place, typically to be burned on a regular basis. He removes himself from town, no longer worthy because he's dirty, and he leaves town. And he sits on an ash heap, picks up a chunk of broken pottery, and starts to just scratch himself because he itches so badly. This is where he is. This is, this is a posture of extreme mourning and grief. Again, his response to mourn, to be in pain, to have grief over this, this is a godly response. But even in that, he did not cross the line. Remember, there's no medicine at this point. Maybe some kind of little salves or something that he could put on himself, but there's no there's no calamine. You don't run to Walgreens and get some calamine lotion to put on your... There's nothing like that. He is in intense pain and suffering without much of a visible way that he can see to get himself through this. Now, again, this is one of those times where we jump then to the next verse and we don't really know the time lapse in between. Scripture doesn't really address that. We do know that Job's wife is becoming impatient 
with how long this process is taking. If you go back to uh, Jewish apocryphal lore, kind of history, um, um, verbal history, tradition, they say that it's 48 years that he actually sat in this ash heap outside the city scraping himself in it. I can't even imagine. Whether it was 48 minutes or 48 years, a terrible thing is happening to him. And his wife is growing impatient, and she reacts. Job chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Tells us a couple things right here. First, the first thing it tells us, the person closest to him on the planet, the person who would know what he did behind closed doors, the person who would know. If he had anything hidden in his heart, she would know. But even she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Reaffirming this idea of blamelessness that Job has lived his life under. But now she goes, she crosses the line. Curse God and die. Now, this could be for a lot of reasons. It could be she's saying, I love you. I want you to be out of this pain. And if you just curse God, he'll take your life and this will be over. Intense pain and the reaction to just do whatever it takes to end that pain. Now, that's one option that she could be saying. She could also be saying, from a, from a godly point of view, she's got reasons to mourn too. She's lost her family. She's lost her possessions, all the things that Job had. She's lost her husband to this pain and this trash heap. And so she's mourning too. But her response, rather than to stay focused on God, she goes a little off the rails here. Now, we see the result of this in the end. Job, at the end of the book, spoiler alert, is blessed with abundance. We see that at the very end. There's a long road before we get there, but we do see that. What we don't see anymore, though, is mention of Job's wife. We don't see a mention of her anymore, and the idea is that she had a choice. She could remain and respond. She could remain strong, focused on God, and focused on on the love of God, and again, his sovereignty, just like Job did, or she could respond in the flesh. When she responds in the flesh, she no longer then is worthy of the blessing that Job receives at the end. Now, quick note, people say, okay, so at the very end, again, spoiler alert, Job is blessed, he has more kids at the end, and people have asked, now his wife, his, this wife had to be 100 plus some odd years old by the time this book unfolds and Job's got more kids. How does that happen? Is it even her? This is another one of those things Jewish apocryphal tradition says that Job's wife dies actually somewhere during this point. Again, not scripture. Dies somewhere during this point and, and the, again, tradition says that he marries Dinah, Jacob's daughter. He marries her at the end, much, much younger than him, and, and that's where he has these new kids. In fact, if you look at the apocryphal tradition, there's, 
it expands on this story to, uh, to really, really talk much more about Job's wife and, and her role in this. It's not scripture, and more importantly, it does not change our theology of what's going on here. So I just want you to be aware, if you start studying and hearing these other things, that's the source that they come from. But the important thing is here that she responds in her flesh. Why do you hold fast your integrity? Why are you hanging on to this? Curse God and die. Now, we don't know, again, we don't know her heart. Was this well-intentioned or was this just done out of frustration or was it done like, move on and die already so I can collect the insurance money? (laughs) However, wherever that came from, it's bad advice. It's not good, godly advice. And it's the person closest to him. Scripture talks excessively about the dangers of accepting bad advice. We see stories over and over again in Kings and Samuel about kings that accept bad advice and how quickly that can go south. Proverbs 16.22 says, Understanding is a fountain of life to the one who has it, but discipline of fools is folly. Psalm 1.1, we got this one on the screen, I love this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, this idea right here is going to be key as we get into the upcoming chapters. The people that you rely on, the people you surround yourself with, your friends, your spouse, your family, can so easily tempt us into going down the wrong path, whether it's well-meaning or not. And this is the problem that Job is facing right here. He's being very much tempted by, we'll see later, his friends, but right now it's his wife being tempted to fail. Now, I want to ask you a question. Can you think of a time, you out there online, can you think of a time when you were tempted by someone very, very close to you to accept ungodly counsel? Or maybe counsel that seemed godly and right at the time because of the place your heart was in, but then later on turned out to not be good or godly counsel. I think that happens to us all the time. How can we tell the difference? Especially when those people are close to you. How can we tell the difference? We can because we have the Holy Spirit. Job did not have that. Job had to simply hold on to his integrity and what he knew of God's character. Much more difficult situation for Job. We have the Holy Spirit, John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. This is called, this idea is called the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Many scriptures back up. The Holy Spirit in you will help you see and discern truth from falsehood well-meaning falsehood sometimes, falsehood that is so close to the truth and makes so much sense to our flesh that we go, that looks good, and that seems like a good idea. So our response then, especially if it's from a, quote, trusted source, we don't look at it as closely as we should. Take everything before the Lord and let the Holy Spirit speak to you on it. Job, thankfully, again, he is able to stand firm, and he rebukes this advice, this advice that she gives, and basically just, let go. It'll all be okay if you let go. And he, and he rebukes her, Job 2.10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept God's good from God and not accept adversity? 
In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Let me read that again. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin. Job's supernatural understanding of the sovereignty of God is what helped him stand firm and not be shaken in this. It's absolutely key to our understanding. We need to know the sovereignty of God. Our purpose on this earth, our lifespan on this earth, every day that we live, every breath we take, everything that comes our way, the good, the bad, everything is ordained by God, including our final outcome, is ordained and determined by the creator of the heavens and earth. And we get in trouble when we want to take responsibility for that. We have a part to play, not responsibility in that, and we don't certainly lay out our path. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has always known. And once we let go of this idea that we have some sort of hand in the final outcome, the more will we, be, we will be forced to rely on God. Every moment that we think we've got a plan is a moment that we don't have to rely on God. Now, it's okay to have a plan if it's God's plan. If we hatch a plan or a, or a procedure in our mind that we think is gonna carry us through, that's a moment that we are not forced to rely on God. And if you're not pressed into relying on, listening for the word of the Holy Spirit, I'll tell you who is going to be speaking to you. And it's gonna be your flesh. And your flesh speaks to you in a way that God would not. And we can discern that if we take the time to listen. Isaiah 64, eight, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are clay and you are our potter and all of us are the work of your hand. God has designed us for a reason, for a purpose. And who are we to question? One scholar wrote it like this. He said, Job knew that the clay would never dare ask the potter, what are you making? The clay, I love that, that idea. And Paul, the apostle Paul, much later, obviously, said it like this. And I think a little better. Romans chapter 9, verses 20, 21. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? It's not up to us. And when we understand that, then we start getting an idea of the sovereignty of God. God will use us. God created us, and he will use us for the purposes as he sees fit. There's a pastor, Chuck Swindoll. Many of you know him. I like him. He says, he calls this, he calls this positive faith, but he says this about it. He goes, this kind of positive faith that Job has, this understanding of God's sovereignty, is the magic stone that turns everything into gold. For when the bad as well as the good is received at the hand of God, every experience of life becomes an occasion of blessing. But the cost is high. It's easier to lower your view of God than to raise your faith to such a height. 
Let me repeat that last part. In fact, let me put it on screen if we have it. It's easier to lower your view of God than to raise your faith to such a height. The enemy wants you to take what comes at you and lower your faith, lower your expectations of God. Conversely, increase your expectations of your own flesh and what you can do. The enemy wants you to go to this place, and it's easier to go to that place than to see everything and trust God. The good, trust God. The bad, trust God. The things where you can see a path, trust him. The things where you can't see a path, trust him. So where is your view of God right now? Where is it? Let me put it in real world terms. Do you trust him whether the economy opens up soon or later? Do you trust him if your next paycheck comes when it should or if it doesn't? I was looking at a thing this morning on the news and it just got me going. What about this idea of voter fraud? Do you think God is at the whim of whether the post office delivers mail-in ballots or not? Do you think God's purposes can't be served because somebody decides to try and instigate fraud? God can overcome all of those things, but our fleshly need to control things, or at the very least to understand why things happen, is behind the ability of Satan to lower your view of God, lower your opinion of his power in your life. God doesn't need to check his Twitter feed for an update before he moves on and makes the next decision. God doesn't have to look at the fact check on your Facebook post. He knows, and he also has the right to use all of it for his purposes. But Satan will also do the same. We need to be careful. We need to take everything we think, post, do, act on, take it before the Lord. And that's the only way we're going to know. So a little telltale, telltale statement to help you understand if you've maybe gone down that road a little bit. Do you ever find yourself asking, I wish God would just hurry up and fill in the blank. Unless it's, I wish God would hurry up and just send Jesus back any other statement, and you're trying to take God's sovereignty into your own hands. And that's a dangerous place to be. Instead of that, let's praise him in all things. The last scripture I'm going to share with you, Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him. There's no earthly reason why a sovereign God, the creator of the heavens and earth, should care about you at all. But he does. Not only does he care about you, but he loves you. That alone is reason to praise him in any storm. Amen? Next week, we're gonna finish up chapter two, I think we are, finished chapter two of Job. It's only verses 11 to 13. I think we can cover it. We're going to go there, but let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. 
we thank you that despite all of our reasons, our earthly reasons that we give you to turn your back on us, to not care about us, to not love us, God, you insist on loving us. You insist on blessing us. You insist on using everything that comes our way to bless us. And the only time we aren't blessed is when we refuse to be under your arm of blessing, under your wing. So, Father, we repent of those times where we have taken things into our control. We repent of those times, maybe it's today, where we have sin that we refuse to bring into the light, sin that we won't repent of, heart attitudes that we refuse to repent of because we think they're righteous. But you know, you alone judge the heart and thoughts of a man. So, Lord, we lay our hearts, we lay our thoughts bare before you. And we repent of those things that don't reflect who you say we are. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, as the worship team plays on, we've got prayer team that's going to be in the back. If any of you here need prayer for this or any issues that you're going through, we have prayer in the back. Prayer, as we'll see going through later chapters, is such an important weapon that we can use against the lies of the enemy. So we have in-house prayer here. We've got the prayer meetings during the day, the lunch hour prayer. We've got the late night prayer at 10 o'clock. We have, if you're here in-house, we have cross cards. You can write your prayers on a, on a card, pin them to the cross. We will pray over them. Prayer is so important. Remember, prayer is nothing magic. It's talking to God. But sometimes we need help. So we have people in the back who would help you with that. Let's take a moment to praise him through communion, through celebrating communion. If you're here and you grabbed a cup on the way in, grab that if you're home. Take whatever you're using. And let's just simply, without a lot of words, without a lot of fanfare, let's take the body of Christ and say, thank you, Lord, for giving your skin for mine. blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant that washes us clean. All we need to do is repent and turn away from our sin. And we are promised that the blood of Christ covers us so that we can stand reconciled in front of the Father. If you accept that, take the blood. Father God, we thank you and we praise you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.
sing, Lord, I give. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm away. Lord, have your Every moment 